Gavin Riley with you on the record here on News Talk until one o'clock. Now, Donald Fallon is with us for our usual hidden history spot. But before we actually get into today's topic, um, Donald, you might have heard some of the conversation we had with Lindsay Erner Byrne in the last hour and uh, events of the last uh, couple of days, particularly in Derry, highlighting the the role of history. And and I wondered what you made of the proposals uh, not to make history a core subject for the junior cert. I must say, I'm often in agreement with Lindsay Arnaburn, and I have the privilege of sitting here as a former student of Lindsay ah, Arnaburn. She okay. supervised my, my master's thesis All way right. back when uh, in University College Dublin, and I would be, be in full agreement with, with, with her comments. I think this week uh, in particular, you know, it, it's taught us a lot about the, the importance of learning from history, about the, the lessons of it and the mistakes mm. uh, of the past. And I must say, I didn't know... Uh, Lyra McKee, she was a friend of, of friends. I know uh, young historians in Belfast, Garrett Mulvenna in particular, who was close to her and close to her work. And I just think it's a real tragedy that we're here. And I mean, to think that the the people who likely did it were born what at the time off or in the aftermath of the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, is yeah. The, certainly, ext- the people who were arrested. Extraordinary uh, in and of itself. Isn't yeah, it? it is extraordinary, and, and it, it sounds very maudlin to to quip the old line about how those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat the mistakes. But it it has really seemed more prescient than, than what's been happening in the last couple of days. And um, I must say, I mean, the point that has to be made, and given what she often wrote about me- mental health struggles and the like, more people have lost their lives in the north of Ireland as a result of suicide mm. since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. They were killed in political violence during the Troubles. And to, to lose a young writer that had the ability to write about things like that, it's just, it's just an extraordinary loss. It's a, it's a terrible tragedy. Uh, but we will move on to, to more regular business, which is our usual hidden history slot that you're here for. And today being, um, it's a day of reflection and commemoration for, for the state and for people in religion and, and for many others. And we know the names of many people who died in the Easter Rising, but sometimes it's the story of those actually who survived the Easter Rising who could fascinate. Uh, and the person you're telling us about today, a man named Dermot Lynch, um, he was in the midst of a food crisis which threatened starvation and we had he was a 1916 veteran he led a group of men who commandeered pigs uh, destined for exportation he slaughtered them and then he distributed the bacon to the poor of Dublin which made heroes of the volunteers in 1918 in the very streets that they'd been only jeered and booed in um, a couple of years earlier uh, before we talk about Dermot Lynch himself Ireland did have something of a history of food riots and of people taking the law in, into their own hands in a very literal sense yeah the, the 1916 veteran turned pignapper is our story today and I mean food riots pignapper pig can't be an actual word. <laughs> I've invented it you know starvation food riots we hear these kind of terms and, and we think of a different period of Irish history. You know, the 1840s, not the early 20th century. But believe it or not, Ireland, and not just Ireland, many parts of Europe, in 1970 and 1918, people were genuinely afraid of the return of starvation and all that would come with it. Mm. So this story today is about this this remarkable man, Dermot Lynch, who took a stand against this, literally overseeing a kind of people slaughterhouse, if you will, when volunteers commandeer animals that are being taken to export and instead ensured that food remained in this country. Mm. And this might sound very... Black 47 to people listening in yeah. uh, and it's on Netflix now well we're watching but it, you know it's more grey 1918 uh, to be honest on the, t- on the topic of that film though how accurate was it in depicting uh, things as widespread as that I really enjoyed that film I really enjoyed yeah. that film and, and historians need to be careful when they go to the cinema because it's not the job of movie makers to give us accurate portrayals of history you know it's their job to entertain us okay. and that's the excuse Neil Jordan has been using now for 20 years <laughs> to get away Michael Collins and I stand, I stand by him Black 47 as well it's kind of like a revenge western mm. uh, is isn't it? You know, and it may have given the viewer the impression when you watch that film 
that, you know, there was a great Irish tradition of just mobbing up and taking food, which was rightfully ours. Yeah. In truth, to be honest, like scenes like that, food riots, they did happen during the famine, but they were relatively rare. Uh, and one contemporary newspaper said at the time, property law supersede those of nature. Grain is of more value than blood. And if they attempt to take up the fatness of the land that belongs to their lords, death by musketry is a cheap government measure to provide for the wants of a starving and incensed people. In other words, don't even think about it. So, you know, food riot in Irish history we have this image of it happening in the mm. West in particular while it sometimes did it was far from commonplace uh, That said though the famine had left pretty long scars and this idea that sometimes if we thought that there was enough food and food was plentiful enough to feed everyone that we had a kind of a moral duty to make sure that it reached everyone's mouth yeah, The memory memory is a powerful thing and not just individual memory I think what, what what's often overlooked in this country is kind of collective memory and that's you know what exists in communities for, for decades or even centuries after uh, events happen and definitely that the the trauma of the 19th century left this mark, you know, on the consciousness of a later political generation. And Dan Brian, you know, the man who starts the War of Independence in Tipperary, he talks about knowing people whose lives were, quote, shaped only by the struggle for existence. Anything that did not relate itself directly to the business of producing food or the wherewithal to keep body and soul together had no meaning for them. Mm. So, you know, the volunteers of, of, of 1916 and that era, if they come from rural backgrounds in particular, they recount this kind of oral tradition of the years of hunger uh, and starvation. You know, Ned Broy talks about the harrowing stories of the famine of 1847 told by the old people, starving wretches eating turnips in the fields and dying of hunger or disease, fleeing to America in the coffin ships. Is it any wonder that Irish people who escaped to America and their descendants should continue to nurse hatred. So, I mean, there's this bitterness. It's an ingrained bitterness that's in people. And then come 1917, when it looks like people may starve again, that collective memory kicks into gear. And people say, we're not waiting around to see how this one plays out. Was it a rational fear, though? Uh, albeit in times of war, but this was the 20th century. So was there the fear of mass starvation? Was it a legitimate fear at their time? If there's food, people can't afford it because wartime inflation drives up the cost of absolutely everything. And this war is, as we know, a disaster. We're looking back. I mean, Britain expects a quick, relatively painless victory over by Christmas, as recruitment slogan mm. said. Join up today so you don't miss your chance. That's what the poster said yeah. uh, in 1914. And the war drains Ireland because Ireland basically becomes, I suppose, in some ways, Ireland's job is now to feed a massive garrison. So you've got massive exportations of Irish food uh, into the British market, trying to feed the war effort in England. And the Irish Times newspaper comes out and condemns, you know, Sinn Féin, the Labour Party and others that talk about this crisis for fomenting a panic about national starvation. But even the authorities were terrified. I mean, they considered doing a food census to get an idea of of just how much food was in the country. So, you know, in Dublin Castle, in police barracks across the country, there was a real worry that, you know, if there was a shortage of food, this time people might actually kick off about it. So I suppose if there was then a genuine fear of a food shortage, if you really wanted to get popular among the people, this was a prime opportunity. To, to really capitalise on If you're that. the post-1916 Republican movement, it's a godsend, really. You know, because during the rising and in its immediate... And people don't like to hear this, but it's a fact. You know, the harshest response to the rebellion comes from the poorest quarters. And if you read the witness statements, you know, volunteers that were on the streets of Dublin in 1916, they talk about certain areas of town where just just buckets of urine, you know, raining down from tenements and people have no great love for you at all. And one volunteer talks about the denizens of the slums, you know, booing and jeering us as we surrendered. Another guy has this great line, he says that the women of Dublin were like French Revolution furies. So now, you know, people fearing imminent starvation, Mm. there's probably a chance to change perceptions and it's a way of being able to say we're not just concerned with the flags that fly in the breeze, you know, we're a social movement and if people are going to starve it won't happen on our watch. Uh, So tell us about the man then who did capitalise and move in at some 
some of that vacuum. This man, Dermot Lynch. Dermot Lynch is amazing. He's been around the block. A he's of been around the block, an Easter week veteran, a Corkonian by birth, but he travelled a lot as a young man. He went to London where he mingled with Michael Collins and, and the great Sam Maguire. He spent a decade in, in the United States and in Irish America, in New York City. And, you know, he enjoyed American citizenship through family. And people sometimes say, maybe not unlike De Valera, that might have been important in actually saving his life uh, the post, fact that he had American post rising and Amer- American citizenship. But against this kind of worsening food crisis, this guy Lynch is a respected political operator. He's been around the block and he's appointed, this is a great job title, imagine seeing this on LinkedIn, Sinn Féin Food Controller. That's his job. So, <laughs> in other words, the par- I don't know if Sinn Féin have a food controller anymore, no. but the party had to be seen to be doing something you know, against the backdrop of a food crisis. So Lynch becomes the Sinn Féin Food Controller. Can you imagine what the job spec is on LinkedIn as well? Where they're like, I'm responsible for the overall inventory and engineering of the full biological... Industry. A background in agriculture from UCD. Yeah. But on a February day in 1918, Lynch does this, this brilliant stunt where you know he orders volunteers and he's with them to intercept pigs that are making their way down Dorset Street. They're being marched into the docks of Dublin to be exposed to England and instead the volunteers bring them into this corporation yard nearby slaughter them and two of the volunteers happen to be butchers which is handy mm. and then you know produce uh, distribute the produce to, to people in, in, in Dublin and it sounds like an amazing spectacle I mean one of the volunteers Bill Stapleton he remembered crowds of people fathered outside the corporation yard and close on 100 policemen waited for us to come out the policemen knocked at the door to gain admittance but were refused there was considerable excitement in the neighbourhood as the news of the capture of the pigs had gone abroad but in any case the noise caused by the screeching and dying pigs yeah. could be heard a considerable distance away. And I'd say, aside from being a very loud scene, it can't have been a very pretty thing to watch. No, not at all. And another, another young fellow that's there, Charlie Dalton, he says, the yard was strewn with carcasses of pigs. I was given a yard brush and was told to sweep up the blood which was being hosed into the channel. I felt very superior engaged in this kind of national, this work of national importance. But I think... Sweeping up pig's sweeping blood Sweeping up pig blood is not a, not a reason a young man would join the IRA in no. 1970 and 1918 but I think Dalton could actually see the effect of the move on the local populace you know, he talks about women coming down and bringing cups of tea and, and bread and he says I drank the tea with great satisfaction recalling the time I had seen the very same refreshments handed to the British Tommies the tide had turned wow. we were now the heroes of the people as a political stunt it was absolutely brilliant it's extraordinary to think that that was the, uh, the, the symbol of popular approval in the day was somebody volunteering to hand you a cup of tea after a heavy day's work but you know it's, it's a small simple things um, there was of course absolutely no way the Dermody would get away with commandeering and stealing all no, the pigs. No, and he's dragged before the courts and he's charged with defiance of the government, theft and gross disorder. And to be honest, I mean, he'd, he'd, he'd committed all three. But it's interesting the way they talk about it in court. The prosecutor says that the action was a startling and unparalleled outrage and if such conduct was allowed to go on, there would be no commercial security in the city. So they frame it very much in economic fears mm. and I think they, they have a real panic that if the volunteers do this once, they could do it again. It was pigs this time, it might be cows the next. Yeah, and that they can just make an example of him to try and nip that in the bud Um, he goes to prison and then he gets married in fairly bizarre circumstances yeah you won't hear Rod Stewart hear about this one of course Rod Stewart sings Grace the song about uh, Joseph Mary Plunkett marrying in in Kilmainham jail but uh, Lynch has a similar kind of story they lock him up in Dundalk jail before they deport him to America and in prison he marries his fiancée Mary Quinn and somehow Mary Quinn and a priest are smuggled into Dundalk jail (laughs) now I I, I don't know if if (laughs) you don't hide them in a cake maybe Mary put the priest in her handbag or something I don't know how you smuggle a priest into a prison 
But the authorities had actually refused permission for this marriage to happen. And it was a massive coup. It was a major coup. I think they were afraid, you know, given what had happened in, in, in 1916 with, yeah. Lynn, with, with, with Plunkett to let it happen again. Roddy Doyle write, writes about this in his great book, A Star Called Henry. He says he wanted to get married in, do- in Dundalk jail so his fiancée could have a Yankee passport and get herself deported with him. But the men in charge were having none of it. The fiancée smuggled the priest in under her coat and her handbag, question mark. I never knew. And a couple of witnesses as well and herself and himself were hitched in Lynch's cell. I, I love that that imagery. I, I just don't know how... Like, you know the, the old the comic book thing of how you smuggle in like a file or a, a Tommy gun inside a cake into a prison? I just don't know how you smuggle two actual humans in. A mobile in phone a, inside a Bible. Yeah, you know, all those little things. <laughs> um, and then, of course, this great pignapping, which I still can't quite comprehend as an actual verb. Uh, it, it inspires a popular contemporary song There's a well. great song written at the time called The Pig Push, and it, it's actually quite funny, and it kind of celebrates the actions uh, of Lynch and his men. And often the songs, even the songs that have survived you know like the, like the foggy Jew which Conor McGregor liked to walk mm. out into the octagon to mm. those songs are very very contemporary I mean they're written right at the time that events happen and the pig push unlike the foggy Jew has faded into relative obscurity right, are you going to give but us a few I'll bars I'll give you a verse now. of it though I can't, I can't carry a note unfortunately okay. I met a friend the other day and this is what he said Sinn Feiners they are out again the streets are running red the slaughter it was dreadful 34 of them are killed I never in my life, said he, saw blood so freely spilled. So says I to him, your dreadful tale fills me with dismay. And of 34 Sinn Féiners bold in Dublin passed away. No, it's pigs, you fool, that's killed, says he. Myself, I saw it done. It was Dermot Lynch that did the work, but a hokey there was fun. <laughs> A lovely little ditty that is. That is to the wearing unreal. of the green, should anyone want to listen back on the podcast <laughs> and give it a belt in the in the local pub tonight? Mm. But Lynch lived an amazing life after this. You know, he was elected uh, a member of the first stall uh, in his absence in the nineteen eighteen general election. So that the pig napping did him no harm mm-hmm. at the ballot box, and he came back to Ireland in the nineteen thirties. And like a lot of people, you know, he just he took no further part uh, in political life. But he did, to his credit, help many people who wanted to write and research uh, about the revolutionary period. It was important in gathering those stories, and it's Thanks to him and people like him, that that story has made its way uh, into the archives. So yeah. that is the tale of rashers for the people. I don't know what we're going to do when we're through this uh, anniversary, the centenary of a lot of these things, because just the, the way that you manage to find some new little story every week, it's phenomenal. Uh, Donald, as ever, uh, thanks so much. Well, if you're having a fry up, listen to the radio. Keep keep Dermot Lynch in mind. That's that's one to think of now. Don't don't uh, Dermot Lynch is the man who made sure that you have all of your uh, your various pig meats uh, in front of you on your George Foreman grill this lunchtime. Uh, Donald, as ever, thanks so much. Donald is the author of the Come Here to Be Blog and the books, volume two of which is in all good bookshops now.